0: Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Reset with me, Sam Delaney, the podcast about mental health but without all the usual bollocks. This week's guest is Sam Thomas. Sam is a writer, public speaker and mental health campaigner. In 2009, he set up the charity Men Get Eating Disorders 2 following his own experience of bulimia and the problems he faced accessing help. His work at that time put a spotlight on the inequalities of men with eating disorders. Since leaving the charity in 2018 to focus his attention on his recovery from complex PTSD and alcohol dependency, Sam has continued to advocate and campaign to raise the profile of the mental health issues he's experienced. He's a really interesting bloke who's fought battles against various different demons in his life and come out much stronger and wiser. I was particularly interested to talk to him about eating disorders in men, something that I knew very little about. The sound's a bit rubbish on this interview, I apologise for that. It was recorded on a dodgy Zoom link on Easter Saturday. But, you know, I wanted to put it out anyway because I think it's a powerful and revealing conversation and Sam's got some really insightful things to say. So bear with it, yeah? Anyway, hope you enjoy Sam, welcome to The Reset.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's a real pleasure. Um, I, I've read a bit about your story. It's fascinating. Um, it's inspiring. And I guess, you know, if we break it down into the the labels of mental health, there, there are three things that you have written about dealing with in your life. Um, bulimia, mm-hmm. um, which is something you've campaigned about as well, eating disorders and men's, an issue that is clearly... Mm-hmm. Overlooked. So, I want to talk about that. PTSD and alcoholism. What's mm. really interesting, though, is the way that you talk about how all of these different conditions are part of one whole. It's not three separate mm. things. These are always, all of our mental health issues are always interconnected, aren't they?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's exactly it. You know, one leads to the other, which I'm sure we'll speak about.
0: What was your first experience? with bulimia and, and eating disorders?
1: Well, for me, it feels like many lifetimes ago now, bulimia, because uh, my story began around um, about the age of 11. And um, to cut a long story short, um, I was really badly bullied at school and um, the bullying became quite relentless. And it was quite, for quite a number of reasons. It's partly because, you know, I was quite different. I was effeminate. So therefore, a lot of the bullying became quite homophobic even though I didn't know my sexuality at the time. I was also very clever, so I was always on top of tests, great stars, A's, etc. So it was, just became any excuse, really, to be bullied. And my way of dealing with that was initially to sort of just to avoid lessons and run out of lessons completely and hide in the boys' toilets. And it was there where I used to binge uh, and purge on the contents of my lunchbox didn't know anything about eating disorders because back in the late early 2000s, we weren't talking about mental health, let alone eating disorders. So it was a very different time period. Um, and the only way I can sort of, when I sort of think back on it now, it's quite hard to remember, to be honest, it's such a long time ago. But, you know, I don't really recall um, sort of making up the links to the, the behaviours that I was sort of doing in the boys' toilets and at home and purging to sort of deal and cope with the bullying um, and linking that to an illness. So, and that actually, actually it, you know, came to light when I was 15 um, from reading an Agony Aunt column, believe it or not, in one of my mum's magazines. And uh, that's where I came to learn about bulimia. You know, that's where it all began. And, um, you know, like I say, it was something very personal to me, something that I thought I'd, I'd invented. You know, it was something very secretive and of course bulimia by nature is very secretive and very hidden so yeah
0: if there'd been more awareness and more of a conversation going on about it publicly particularly Mm. bulimia in men and young men
1: what would have been different well to be honest i think i'd have chosen to ignore it because it had become it was too close to home i suspect you know and you know i think you know just thinking back to when i read uh, the letter from the uh, in the ugly aunt column uh, from what i remember it was actually a mother who split up from her partner and um when she used to put the kids to bed you know she would binge and purge and of course i didn't relate with her situation but i certainly related with the behaviors but after that it became in a way sort of more of a weapon in which i could self-harm with so it got a lot worse mm. because i thought oh actually this is really dangerous this could kill me so that's more of a reason to do it but uh, I suppose when you're sort of being very le- when you have such a low self-esteem and just very unstable and very um sort of battered I suppose by the buddies as I was at that time you know naturally you know it, it's just all part of the mindset I suppose do you know what I mean so it just became like I say a weapon of which I could self-arm with uh and that continued for quite a few years right through into early adulthood before I started uh my road to recovery was
0: was it about to a large extent confronting the fact that the bullying had had been you know a a form of trauma that needed to be processed
1: absolutely you know I said yeah I said for many years now it was a trauma response you know it was nothing to do with weight or shape or size or aspiring to be a certain Mm. body type or anything like that you know that Believe it or not, it was only until I sort of was well on the road to recovery from bulimia did I become concerned about all those things. It was quite the opposite to what people would expect. And of course, you know, the interesting thing with bulimia, is people might may or may not know, is that you don't sort of necessarily gain weight or lose weight. Often, people are, are the same weight. So, and because it is very hidden and very secretive, as, as I've just mentioned, you know, it becomes this sort of invisible sort of eating disorder. Unlike anorexia, where of course you know people would notice the signs, maybe not immediately, but mm. much later on when someone loses weight, quite considerable considerable amount of weight. So I think for me, yes, it very much was a trauma response.
0: Was that something that you underwent therapy for?
1: No, not really. No, I mean, again, um, you know, I you know it's a bit of a test of my memory, but I think it was actually two days after leaving high school. I actually spoke to the doctor. Um, for the first time, because I hadn't spoken to anybody really, apart from a couple of school friends who were a bit freaked out by it, I think, safe so to say and when, on that doctor, uh, on that for that doctor's appointment even it was actually a locum, not the family doctor, so I came in, on my own accord, without any parents um, my parents were completely unaware, I should say and um, I spoke to the doctor and um, I think, from what I was just writing about this very recently actually, and actually it was a 45 minute appointment and um, that kind of shows how concerned the doctor actually was and um, the following day I had an emergency mental health assessment under CAMS, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service Um, but unfortunately um, this is back in 2002 now but unfortunately nothing really happened and um, things happened much later on but it wasn't you know it wasn't sort of treatment it wasn't sort of you know, specifically for the eating disorder, it wasn't really therapy, it was just kind of support for me to move into some supported, uh, young people supported accommodation programme, so it's quite strange really, when I think about it now, I sort of went for one thing but got support in different ways, but not for the one thing that I could really have benefited from support from. Um, and actually I attempted to get help again when I was 18, when I was an adult, because so I thought, well, I'm an adult now, and um, I don't need parental consent, and because of course that was an issue and um but again you know i you know had a similar sort of resistance i suppose you know from the doctor because you know the doctor focused more on the depression than the bulimia so she put me on antidepressants put me in a waiting list for counseling which took two years to get to the top of the list of course i never did get to the top of the list and um yes yeah, so it was quite strange so for me it was kind of in the end i had to do it for myself and um it's quite hard to explain briefly, you know what I mean, but you know, it's the, only briefest, yeah. the, the most simplest way I can describe it, it was almost like a series of suddenlies that happened in my life from the age of about 18 onwards. So, you know, suddenly I moved to Brighton for Liverpool, suddenly I started getting involved in volunteering projects, suddenly I had my first part-time job, I'd also done, uh, you know, some adult qualifications to make up the GCSEs that I didn't get, one thing led to the other and I think as I sort of built up my confidence my own sort of sense of you know my self-esteem and all those things you know it, it, it almost made the, the bulimia eventually sort of over three four five years sort of eventually completely redundant and um, yeah. that's the only way I can explain it really because there's no other way and um, and of course it was through trial and error a lot of error I should add and um, a lot of learning so yeah i think for me sort of bulimia was one of those things that i kind of grew out of but it's not usually as easy as that i think i just should, should add i think just in my case it was a kind of a lot of things had to come together before i could sort of become free from the bulimia
0: and of course the underlying causes the issues were still there and I, i'm guessing not completely processed and that's why once the bulimia Went. It was replaced by other things. Something you've written about quite powerfully. We know alcohol was w- became one of the most dangerous things. But you know, you, uh, I've read some of your stuff where you're where, uh, and I can really relate on this level. Is that like it? It became alcohol, but it was. You can now see it was various other things that seemed relatively benign, like oh, exercise. Exactly.
1: Yeah, and you know, I've had all those issues. To be honest, so, I mean, just to link alcohol and bulimia. You know, I I didn't drink at all until I was twenty four. I um, tried alcohol once when I was 17, my first boyfriend he didn't drink so I didn't drink and and um, so yeah, yeah like I said I drank when I was 24 and you know I was a, 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 you know it was quite weird really to sort of start at 24 but ended up in a detox rehab, di- rehab, rehab centre by the age of 30. So you know I really did swap one for the other um, you know, yeah. of course, it was very progressive, it was very gradual, it wasn't sort of overnight by any means, you know, and of course, anyone know who knows al- anyone who knows alcoholism, you know, it really is, slowly, slowly, over time. And, um, you know, it, it, you know, it's just one trauma to the other that also happened. So, one example is my mother died when I was 25, and, um, you know, I didn't know her from the age of about 18 onwards, so, we, yeah, we have gone out when I was 18, so there was a seven-year Period, which we never spoke then she died she died quite quickly from cancer so and of course I heard about this a few days after her death so you know alcohol was there and very recently it only just started drinking so I think that was probably one of the uh, additional sort of traumas and probably the most significant at that time uh, very early on in my 20s so my mid-20s even so yeah it's kind of quite easy for me to understand now I think probably as little as it, probably 18 months ago, I think I was only just beginning to sort of make these links between bulimia, alcohol, the underlying traumas that happen along the way. Um, and of course, trauma has a funny old way of sort of leading to other traumas when it's unresolved, if you know what I mean, so it has that sort of chain reaction mm-hmm. sort of effect. So yeah, it's, it's kind of textbook in a way, but I think not a lot of people relate with that. But I think for me, it really was sort of, swapping one thing for another over a period of time
0: and the drinking just became a, a daily habit I mean you say you, you became a daily drinker but of course that's not that you unusual know. is it in the in the world we live you don't feel strange if you're drinking no, every not day at all.
1: no and, and it's quite interesting because I didn't start drinking every day you know for me my idea of a binge drink was two small you know those very little bottles you get on the train or the plane you know two of those on a saturday night and that was it you know what i mean that's how it started in my mid-20s and then before i knew it it was two to three you know the, the usual size bottles if you know what i mean from, you know and i'm not really sure when that many really happened if you know what i mean it's sort of just gradually very slowly sort of over a period of time but on the other hand it kind of happened quite quickly so i think i was drinking two three bottles like that from probably at the age of 26 27. So, you know, and, you know, I was running a charity at the time, which is all to do with eating disorders, actually. So, you know, I was very much kind of like my own boss, but not exactly my own boss and um, working at home, working on the road, you know what I mean? And I, I don't think I managed that very well privately. I think, you know, I, I, you know, I was thrown in at the deep end you I know, set this charity up when I was 21, as you do. Most people leave university at 21. Um, so, you know, I think for me, it was just not being able to deal with the pressures that well as I perhaps thought I was managing and you know alcohol was just very it's very convenient it's there so it just helped sort of take the edge off and um, of course just chasing that sort of effect you know over a period of time that classic case isn't it you know you know the more you drink obviously the more the tolerance, the more you become dependent so therefore you need to drink more to get the same effect it's exactly that yeah
0: it's it's the, the theme i can see which again i can relate to a lot is that thing of not quite acknowledging how tough things are um and telling yourself that you're coping better than you are
1: well i think i i, I realized fairly recently i think i uh, i mis- mistaken my stubbornness with my resilience if you know what i mean and um you know i mm. think over the course of my 20s i thought i was i was you know, almost a bit superhuman in a way. But of course, you know, because I had all, you know, given the age that I was and still processing all that trauma and all, everything else. And, you know, I, I think it all suddenly hit me at, at the age of 30. And it just one thing led to the other and a very significant uh, trauma leap to a relationship happened tail end of my 20s. So that sort of was the tipping point. And, you know, I think you know for me yeah it's exactly what you say because I was drinking in private you know it was with other people hardly ever you know not socially Um, so it was all very easy to keep it contained Um, and I think that was the same with the bulimia that was always very contained the alcohol that was contained so there was a pattern there and um, like I say I think because you know I was functioning albeit in a dysfunctional way you know no one around me had any reason to be concerned and you know it wasn't like I was stumbling out of pubs drunk it wasn't that I was getting in fights and arguments it was none of those telltale signs that we might think you know and often that's more to do with like binge drinking rather than alcoholism because I think a lot of people who are alcoholic tend to be sort of quite private about it generally speaking and um so I think that's very much me and um so yeah so, I, because it was all contained, as far as I was concerned, you know, I was keeping up the the sort of, a, the, the, what's the word, the sort of image, I suppose, that everything was well and I was coping and there was nothing to be concerned about because as far as other people around me, there wasn't any issue.
0: And when you did become more open about what was going on and the fact that you had a serious problem, did you find that, like, a lot of mates were a bit surprised or almost sceptical
1: Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think they were more in denial than I was <laughs> for a while I'm not even joking either because I think again because of the privacy sort of element they thought when I said to just a few close friends that I needed to go to a detox uh, place in London, City Rose, which is my close, and uh, they were like, oh really, yeah. thinking I was being a bit over the top and, but of course they didn't realise that I'd been to a 3 times in a six month mm. period with this mysterious illness which of course that turned out to be alcohol withdrawal mm-hmm. And uh, it's very, very serious. You know, I was seeing things that weren't there, for goodness sake, you know, during these episodes, particularly after the third, fourth day, we're trying to sort of play it out. But, of course, not knowing it was alcohol withdrawal. So, you know, I know I hadn't sort of, I, I literally knew nothing about alcohol addiction, you know what I mean, or the effects of withdrawal, or any of it, you know, so I was throwing completely at the deep end. So when I told a few of those close friends, like I say, I think they just shut down completely. they just stopped. I'm just being out of touch. Then it was only after I'd relapsed, immediately after that detox, I think they thought, oh, hang on a minute, you know, Sam really has got a problem. How did that happen? We didn't see that coming. So it was kind of a shock to people, definitely. And it's only really over the past sort of 18 months when I detoxed for the fourth time, a couple of November's back, you know, I decided to sort of be quite public about it because I thought, well, addiction thrives in isolation and secrecy, so it kind of makes sense to do the complete opposite sort of you know, sort of recovery has to be much bigger than the addiction ever was. You know, I've heard other people sort of talk about their mm-hmm. recovery journeys on Twitter, but, you know, I think I just literally hadn't engaged with any of that up until that point. So, so yeah, so I think for me, when I was in, you know, just in the hospital bed on that first day of that eight-day detox, you know, I just decided, right, I'm going to tweet about it and I'm not going to care what people think. And I think I got to that point where I thought, you know, I, I didn't care what people thought about my eating disorder, and you know, and I did a huge amount of work of raising awareness in that respect. You know, why should this be any different? You know what I mean? Even though, yes, there's a lot more stigmas, there's a lot more, uh, you know, people are a lot more discriminatory, I think, towards people with, uh, people with addiction rather than post disorder, you know, eating disorders or mental health, for instance. So, but yeah, so that's exactly it. That's what I did. I just decided to talk very publicly about it this time
0: i appreciate you talking so openly here and, and i and i absolutely agree and I, i've yeah I've been through a similar thing where people you're, you're so right the way you describe it, i haven't heard someone else describe it so well where you kind of go well yeah the whole point of me being an addict was the fact that i was keeping it so secret that was what told that was almost the, the biggest signifier of it being an addiction issue and because, precisely because of that everyone around you is almost sceptical. And I, and I played it down for the first sort of two years in recovery. I was very like when people asked me, say, oh, why did you give up? Because you didn't have a problem, did you? And I'd always love, oh, no, no, not really. I just fa- I just found that I felt better when I didn't drink. It's absolute bollocks. I mean, it's true. I do feel better when I don't drink. But I just laughed that off completely with people because I don't know. why I was embarrassed or I thought a bit like what you touched upon earlier. I thought that people thought you are being that I was being over the top or self self-dramatizing, you know, and you don't want to be seen that way. But at the same time, you need people to know that this is serious. If not, you get in situations as well where if, if mates, if you've led mates to believe you're just like giving it a go or something, then you'll be in social situations where people start putting you under pressure to drink, which they certainly would not do. I don't know anyone who would do that once you've, come out and said no i've got a big problem here lads and that's no. exactly
1: it for some reason we're expected to sort of minimize it to sort of make it comfortable for other people for some bizarre reason which i never yeah. really quite understood why that was but i suppose you know like i say because i've dealt with quite a few different issues with stigmas attached i've sort of got used to that sort of territory i suppose of not really uh, you know what i mean sort of challenging it and mm. just doing it i suppose and just not having any shame and owning it most importantly so um, to me this was no different from all the other things that I'd experienced you know obviously I came out you know when I was 16 when it was very unpopular to be gay for instance you know and I was persecuted Mm. for that so I suppose that was really good training for me for all the other issues that I'd experienced not being a man with any sort of becoming an alcoholic in my sort of 20s and of course working in the charity sector that was particularly problematic because the idea of having a problem and being very public about it whilst working in that sort of field you know it's, that can be quite yeah interesting to say the least um mm. so yeah so i've experienced quite a few of those different situations over the course of my life where in the end i kind of thought if no shits to give really what people think and just and just get on with it
0: have you read brianie gordon's book glorious rock bottom
1: no not yet it, i'm it's, trying it's re- to
0: it's really interesting i think it's a great book and it's uh really interesting similarity to what you said there in that she was campaigning about mental health issues and becoming you know a very big figure in that world mm. and was doing a huge amount of talks and writing and everything else but while she was doing all of that and turning up places and telling people how to get a hold of their mental health, she her drink problems getting out of control mm. and um, she felt under more and more pressure because it was exhausting being this spokesperson for mental health. that probably what led her into alcoholism, but then she was particularly ashamed to tell anyone about the fact that she was drinking in such a problematic way because she was presenting herself as an expert on self care and mental health
1: it does actually i was just thinking perhaps we'll get along really well then in that case (laughs) because it sounds exactly like the sort of thing that you know it's exactly my experience because you know it used to make me laugh i used to travel up and down the country and continuous delivering these workshops to to professionals and i used to sort of sort of cringe at Mm. myself the things i used to say about self-care and you know, this is how to keep ourselves well from eating disorders No, go go back to the hotel or go back home and do the complete opposite to all the things that i've been preaching <laughs> literally that's one of my own bullshit, basically yeah. so exactly and yeah. um you know uh, yeah yeah a bit more to be sad than that really
0: no but it's uh, i think it's common to any any of us who sort of you know try to stand up and speak out about our own experiences in order to help others a lot of the time and i you know i do this podcast and i write a newsletter that goes alongside it i often find myself saying and writing things that i do believe to be true i know them to be true Mm. but i will often feel like a hypocrite writing them down because you don't want to come across Mm. like some sort of pious i know it all because you know that you'll be guilty of all of those things yourself from time to time you know
1: oh completely i mean it's one of the reasons what i do with twitter actually because i i do tweet a couple of times a day and actually one of the things that I do is I write a tweet and then save it for a couple of days. But I tweet it to think, do I really mean that? And do I actually really sort of preach that, you know, personally? You know what I mean? Not just saying it to the world as if all that reads well and that's all of well meant. And do you know what I mean? It's sort of, do I, do I really sort of do that myself? And sometimes I tweet them to, to remind myself of the things that I'm supposed to be doing. You know what I mean? So actually it's a good way of holding yourself accountable but telling the world at the same time. And hopefully other people benefit benefiting from that in the process of doing so. So but yeah, so I'm a lot more conscious of that now.
0: I know that you you went into a sort of a residential uh, rehab facility, but you found it wasn't for you and you found a different way. But let let me ask you this, how how much of your recovery have you had to go back again into the traumas that you've touched upon whether that be the bullying or or the relationship stuff or or your mother
1: oh absolutely I mean I'm just coming towards the end now of doing trauma therapy which I pretty much started almost immediately after the Mm. last detox actually and that was sort of the way things worked out was intentional and um yeah absolutely and I've put a lot of work you know time and energy into that because you know I've I've realized that I've got this huge backlog of stuff and uh you know and I've no shame in that but you know I also recognize that I've got to do something about it so for me the past of about eighteen months hasn't just been about sobriety by any means it just begins with that it really is just dealing with all those underlying traumas and and just that personal development I suppose do you know what I mean it's kind of just becoming a better person and you know so it's just kind of learning how to sort of manage things a bit better and you know all those things really and I think trauma therapy alongside all sorts of different things that I've been doing during the lockdown like writing a book and doing twitter and engaging with a recovery posture you know all sorts of things really that I've just been able to do and um, of course it's only the beginning still I think for me and um, yeah but you know I've yeah. a lot of time and energy like I say it's it's been quite you know and i haven't been working for the past two years you know to you know just to show really how seriously that i'm taking these things to get it right and make sure that you know once am uh back to life and back to work and all those things that i'm not sort of having re- hope to be having repeat relapses and you know what i mean so to break that cycle that pattern
0: what a line that i read of yours that i thought was really interesting was you said you know i sometimes now go for long walks along the seafront in Brighton, where you live and you said things like that that i wouldn't have allowed myself to do in the past what, what do you mean by that you wouldn't have allowed yourself to do it
1: well because i was just so absorbed in my work yeah. the whole sense of the time you know my work was my coping mechanism my strategy for, for all sorts of things and actually it worked as a, a distraction very convenient distraction so you know i never allowed myself to do things like walks you never allowed myself to do things socially unless you know i i could just squeeze in between meetings sort of Mm -hmm. thing you know what i mean and um you know so and yet i used to make time every single day to go to the gym but you know that was another addiction for a while not nowadays fortunately Mm -hmm. but you know what i mean so i think i just everything was just so just so you know what i mean just so as it was all the time and i just never thought to change things you know and how sort of the damaging some of those things were doing to me, and of course, I stopped. And, uh, you know, drinking and all those things. So, yeah. So, for me, it still feels a bit of a novelty now, actually. I live slap bang on Brighton Seafront. The pier is five minutes away, and yet I don't really appreciate yeah. it. So, it just seems like a bit of a missed opportunity, to say the least. So, yeah.
0: Um, and what are the other important things in your life, in the day-to-day?
1: Well, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Now, we're never coming to the end of lockdown, but, you know, talking about exercise, for instance, you know, I think the gym has been absolutely essential, mm. not just to, you know, because it's always, for me, it's always been the gym or drinking. It's never been both, and that's when it's been both, actually, mm. I've become more obsessed with the gym as well as the drinking, which sounds completely mad when I think about it now. But, um, mm. so for me, that's been a large part of it because, you know, I'm also recovering from eating eat, So if I go to the gym, I eat really well you know what I mean and I um, sleep as well for that matter so that sort of anchors everything in a way in the gym so I've yeah. been doing home exercises which yeah is a bit boring a bit dull but you know I've been doing it anyway so you know when I go back to the gym hopefully next week if all goes well with the lockdown um, it's not a shock to the system you know what I mean so I that has been fundamental you know just doing writing as well because you know I think you know I forget how much I enjoyed writing until I uh, sort of came out of my job about three years ago now and actually started writing articles and I thought I quite enjoyed this actually it was another outlet to sort of express uh, my feelings, my emotions my experiences, all those things so yeah so it's just kind of doing those things really and yeah just kind of just getting engaged with people as well just talking with people you know if it is online you know I quite like you you know how we've or how I've sort of managed over the lockdown, you know, because all my friends are at a distance, you know, they're not around the corner. So, but we've heard, I've heard more from people during the lockdowns so than I would have done otherwise, I think the way things have yeah. worked out. So, yeah, so just doing, it's kind of just going back to basics, I think, a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it's hard to know what the basics actually are, I think. Uh,
0: well, it sounds like you're doing tremendously well. For me, a, a big theme of, of your story is, you know, you didn't, always recognize what was going on until it was too late have you got any advice for like you know younger people like the younger you
1: yeah it's a good point actually i'm not quite sure how to answer that because you know i was growing up before the days of social media and the Mm. internet was still quite relatively new you know what i mean so when i was a teenager so but i think if i was living in today's times yeah chances are I probably would be a little bit more aware Say, you know about some of these issues and not to be afraid of it, I suppose, is, what is the first thing that comes to mind. You know, just, you know, do find information from reliable sources, websites, etc. but also don't be afraid to ask for help. And it's also sort of yeah. she washy when I say it like that, but do you know what I mean? It's that sort of thing, that help doesn't necessarily go to the doctor or see an counsellor. It could just be talking to a friend. It could just sort of, using different online uh, support networks, um you know like the recovery posse on Twitter, for instance the immediate example i can think of and um you know what i mean it's just kind of just not keeping it to yourself because i think that's what if anything i've learned from both bulimia uh alcohol but also the traumas is that when you keep it to yourself it just gives it permission to thrive and it takes over and just destroys your life if you allow it to so i think it's really important just to not sort of do the opposite to what the the illness wants you to do, I suppose.
0: Sam, it's a real pleasure talking to you. Really inspirational story and, and such a great sort of perspective on the way in which all of these different mental health issues interconnect. I think that's such an important message for people to understand when they're addressing their own recovery. Um, so I really appreciate your time. I wish you all the best in, in, in your recovery going forward. And uh, where can people find out more about what you're up to? Is Twitter the best place or?
1: Yeah, at the moment it's Twitter. It's Sam underscore Thomas 86, I think. And uh, yeah, if you search Sam Thomas, and sure you can find me. Um, yeah.
0: Brilliant. All right, Sam, thanks ever so much. Happy Easter.
1: Thank you. So much. Sure. And you?
0: There you go. That was Sam Thomas. As I told him, I found his story very inspirational and eye-opening too. He's been through so many battles with so many different things in his life. This is one of those chats that was an eye-opener as well, because as I said, eating disorders is not something that I'm particularly familiar with, something more often associated with women but although it's something I haven't experienced specifically, the mental and emotional experiences that go along with it sound very familiar to those that you experience during drink addiction, drug addiction, or I suppose any other form of self-destructive behaviour. just goes to show that these bad habits that some of us fall into are only ever a symptom of something deeper, and only by confronting those deeper feelings of pain will we ever be able to stop doing the bad stuff. Anyway... I hope you enjoyed listening to Sam. Please subscribe to The Reset if you haven't already at samdelaney.substack.com. The newsletter arrives in your inbox every Friday and I'll be back with another podcast next week. Until then, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down.